Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Colossians. Let's read the first eight verses of Colossians 1 and then the first 17 verses of Colossians 2. The text for this morning's sermon will be verse 6 of chapter 2. Let's begin our reading at Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is for you, a faithful minister of Christ who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. And now let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joining and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, 
or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. We end our Scripture reading at that point. The text for this morning's sermon is verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. This morning as a congregation, we have once again had the privilege of hearing a public confession of faith. Three questions were asked, and a simple one-word answer was given. A one-word answer that is a summary of so much more that was confessed before the consistory. And for the purposes of this morning's sermon, What is especially noteworthy is the connection between those first two questions that were asked. The first question concerns our faith. What we believe for the question was asked, do you acknowledge the doctrine contained in the Old and New Testaments and in the articles of the Christian faith and taught here in this Christian church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation? That concerns our faith. But then the second question concerns our walk, our behavior, our conduct as Christians. For the second question was asked, have you resolved by the grace of God to adhere to this doctrine, to reject all heresies repugnant thereto, and to lead a new godly life? And it's important that both questions are asked. Because the Christian life is not simply a matter of what we believe. It's more than having our doctrine right. At the same time, the Christian faith is not simply how we live. There's more to it than our conduct, our behavior as God's people because the Christian life concerns both our faith and our practice what we believe, and how we live. And that comes out in this passage that we consider this morning. On this occasion of public confession of faith, we consider Colossians 2, verse 6, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. There's our faith. By faith we believe in Jesus Christ And we look to Him for salvation alone. But the text does not stop there. It goes on to say, so walk ye in Him. There's our life. Our behavior. Our conduct as God's people. And the text brings the two together showing that both are important aspects of the Christian life. And so with that in mind, we want to look at this passage to see what it teaches us about both those aspects using as our theme, having received Christ, walk in Him. First, we will look at the receiving of Christ. Second, the corresponding walk. And then third, the only possibility for that walk. Having received Christ, walk in Him. The receiving of Christ, the corresponding walk, and the only possibility. Paul says to the church at Colossae, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus 
the Lord. Paul was confident that the saints in Colossae had indeed received Christ. And this in response to the Gospel that had been proclaimed in their midst. He's mindful of that when he begins his letter. Early on in the letter he says at the end of verse 5, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the Gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. The Gospel had come to the city of Colossae. And specifically, the minister who brought that word was a man by the name of Epaphras. That's verse 7. As ye have as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. He had preached Jesus Christ. And now, Paul writes this epistle to those who had received Christ in response to the preaching. They had come to believe in Him. So that rather than rejecting Christ crucified as foolishness, rather than stumbling over it, They believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. And this was very personal for them. That comes out from the the specific word that's used in chapter 2, verse 6 when he speaks of them receiving Christ. The idea is receiving to oneself. They had appropriated Christ for themselves so that they looked to Him personally for their salvation. And in light of all this, The Apostle Paul gives thanks to God. That's where he begins in Colossians 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul gave thanks to God because by His Spirit, He had worked faith in their hearts. And as a congregation, we give thanks to God that He's worked faith in your heart, Dirk. And that in response to the hearing of the Gospel. For as one who was born into the sphere of the covenant, as one who was baptized as an infant, and as one who's grown up his whole life in the church, it can be said of you too that you have heard the word of the truth of the Gospel. You've heard it from the pulpit. You've heard it in the catechism room. You've heard it from your teachers and your parents. Now praise be to God that by His Spirit your response has been to believe in it. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's really the heart of your confession that you make this morning. It's not, first in, it's not a matter of confessing faith in the church as such. It's a matter of confessing faith in Jesus Christ. And that personally, so that what you are saying is that Christ Jesus is not simply my parents' Savior. He's not simply my sibling's Savior, but He's my Savior. And for that as a congregation, we give thanks to God. As your family, as your pastor, as a body of believers, we rejoice in God's work. And we do indeed direct that thanks to God. That's how Paul words it in verse 3 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so too, we give thanks to God. 
Because we understand that a matter we understand that receiving Christ is entirely due to God's sovereign grace. And that comes out in the very language of this passage when Paul uses that word receive. He does not say that they fought for Christ Jesus the Lord. He does not say that they won Christ Jesus the Lord or that they earned Christ Jesus the Lord, but that they received Christ Jesus the Lord. That is inspired by the Spirit, he uses language that strips away any notion of pride. For what glory is there for us if we are receivers? To be a receiver is to be a spiritual beggar. One who has absolutely nothing in his hands to bring to God in order to be right with God. We have nothing that we can give in exchange. Nothing that we can use to barter with this God. But we come completely empty-handed and by faith we receive Christ and the salvation that's found in Him. So that's what's being communicated here is God's great grace. His sovereign grace. That it's not a matter of the works of righteousness which we have done. And even when it comes to our faith, that too is something that's given to us so that even our receiving of Christ is something we've received. Let me say that again. Even our receiving of Christ is something we receive because faith, both the faculty and the activity, are gifts worked in us. Both the, the, the ability to believe and the act of believing are worked in us by the Spirit. And that according to God's sovereign grace. His grace in choosing us to be His people in all eternity when He set His love upon us. His sovereign grace in giving us that gift of faith by the work of His Spirit so that we who are spiritually blind can now see. And what all of this means is that there's no room for boasting this morning. We do not say in our pride, I have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Nor are we praising Dirk because he, by his own free will, made a decision for Jesus Christ. But we give all the thanks, all the praise, all the glory to our sovereign God. We do so because we recognize that this is indeed a a blessed and tremendous privilege. To have this be said of us. That we have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Because that means we've received Christ Himself. We've received Him personally. To state it negatively, this is not just a matter of receiving His Word or His doctrine. It's a part of it. A very, very important part of it. Receiving Christ, we receive His Word. Not just the words that Christ Jesus Himself spoke. 
that are written in the Gospel accounts, but the whole of God's Word, which is God's revelation of Jesus Christ to us. And we say about that Word that it is sweeter than honey, that it's more precious, it's more valuable than silver and gold. And we receive also the doctrine concerning Christ, the the truths about Christ, about His person, about His natures, about His offices, about His saving work. And we receive that doctrine, that truth concerning Christ as that which thrills our soul. But that's not the main point. Because receiving God's Word by itself is not what makes us acceptable to our God. Having a a right theology, being orthodox in the faith, is not our ticket into heaven. Those things by themselves do not save us. And while the Word is indeed sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold, far sweeter is the heart from which those words came. Far more precious are the lips that uttered those words. It's not just about receiving the Word or the doctrine concerning Christ, but it's a matter of receiving Christ Himself. Or to state it in the negative another way, it's not first and foremost a matter of receiving all of the blessings of salvation that are found in Jesus Christ. Again, that's an important part of it. Because there are many riches of salvation that are found in Jesus Christ that come to us by faith. Some of which are mentioned here in the surrounding context. For example, chapter 1, verse 14, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Those are blessings of salvation that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. There's deliverance from the body of sin. That's chapter 2, verse 11. In whom, that is in Christ, also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. We're also raised to new life in Jesus Christ. That's the next verse, verse 12. Buried with Him in baptism, whereof, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God. We have new life in Jesus Christ. There's all these blessings that come to us. But again, that's not the main thing that's in view here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. For Jesus Christ is not just a heap of heavenly riches. He's not just a, a reservoir of spiritual blessings. And even though there are tremendous blessings to be found in Him, they are not first and foremost what satisfies our soul. For as Christ taught us, we are to eat and drink Him. It's His flesh. It's His blood that is that heavenly meat and drink for our souls. It's only when we have Christ Jesus Himself that we are fed, that we are nourished, that we are satisfied. And thus, praise be to God that the text says what it does. 
as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. We've received Him. So that we now have a relationship with the Savior. That too can be a way of understanding the specific verb that is used here. could have the idea of taking or receiving into close association so that the idea is that we now have a, a relationship of love and communion with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a thing this is. In light of the One about whom we were talking. The One who's described for us at the end of chapter 1 in some of the most exalted language concerning our Savior that's found in the entirety of God's Word. Notice what Paul says about this Savior in chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of every creature. By Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, and so on. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things. By Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And He has preeminence in all things. That's the one we're talking about. And what this passage is saying is that when we believe in Him, we receive Him. Personally, we come to have a relationship with Him. To give that even more substance, we can think of this in terms of the three names that are used here. We've received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, the three primary names of our Savior. We've received Him as Christ. God's anointed One. The One who was given the Spirit without measure. Anointed with the oil of gladness above His fellows so that He could say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He hath anointed Me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent Me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. This is no uncommissioned amateur Savior. But He's the One sent by God Himself. The visible representative of the Most High. And thus He was able to say to the Jews, for I came down from heaven not to do Mine own will, but the will of Him that sent Me. And He did the will of the Father, His prophet, priest, and king. That too is included in this side, the name Christ. He's our prophet. He's the one who has revealed the Father to us as the one who was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. He's our priest. The one who made the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, atoning for our sins. And He's our King. Who as King spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly. He triumphed over them. And now He sits enthroned in heaven, ruling over all. We've received Him as Christ. And so too, we have received Him as Jesus. 
that sweetest of all names. The name that was assigned to him. Not by Joseph and Mary, but by God Himself. For it was the angel that came to Joseph and said, Thou shalt call His name Jesus. For He shall save His people from their sins. We've received Him as Jehovah's salvation. Not as a halfway Savior. But as the One who is able to save us to the uttermost to deliver us both from the the guilt the penalty of sin as well as the power the dominion of sin and he's able to do that not by on account of his great military strength although he certainly is capable of that but he saves us through his death at the cross of calvary where He laid down His life for His sheep. But we receive Him not just as Christ, not just as Jesus, but also as our Lord. As our Redeemer. The One who paid the ransom so that we might be set free. And it was a ransom not of silver and gold, but a ransom of His own precious blood. And having set us free, He is now our Lord and our God. The One who sovereignly controls everything that happens in our life down to a single hair falling from our head. This Savior is Christ Jesus the Lord. And when we believe in Him, we receive Him in all three ways. We have a relationship with Him in all three ways so that having received Him as Christ, we are now partakers of His anointing. We too are given the Spirit and we are made to be prophets, priests, and kings. Having received Him as Jesus, that means we have the forgiveness of sins and the right to everlasting life. And having received Him as Lord, that means we have been translated out of that kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of our Savior Jesus Christ. And all this means that having received Christ, we have everything that we need, congregation. And that's the testimony of this chapter. Notice verse 10. And ye are complete in Him. Just before that, it says in verse 9, for in Him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ dwells all fullness. Or as John 1 verse 14 reveals to us, He is the One who is full of grace and truth. But now having received Christ Jesus, we are now partakers of His fullness. That's John 1 verse 16. 
which says, of His fullness, have we all received. So Christ is the one in whom dwells all fullness. We receive of His fullness, and that means we ourselves are filled. So that the only conclusion that can be drawn is what's said in chapter 2, verse 10, ye are complete in Him. You have everything that you need. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? The devil wants us to think otherwise. The devil would have us to believe that we need something more, something in addition to Jesus Christ. But the good news of the Gospel that comes out in this passage is that having received Christ Jesus the Lord, we are complete in Him. We have everything that we need. And may the knowledge of that truth be what spurs us on to now walk in Him so that there's a corresponding walk that's in harmony with our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the instruction we receive in the second half of the verse. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. And there are two main aspects to this walk. First, walking in Him means continuing in the faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. We say that in light of the surrounding context which warns repeatedly against false doctrine and error. For example, in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, by inspiration, in this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. There were false teachers who sought to deceive God's people with their enticing, their persuading arguments. We see the same danger noted in chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Paul was concerned that they would be taken captive by these philosophies of the world, by the traditions of men. This includes the, the great danger of the thinking of works righteousness. That's chapter 2, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days. There were those who were saying you, you have to follow these regulations if you want to be right with God. And Paul is saying, let no man deceive you in that. There was a danger that they be led astray. And it's in light of all of that that the Apostle Paul says what he does in chapter 1, verse 23, if ye then continue in the faith, grounded and settled. That's what he wants to see. And that therefore is a part of what's in view when he says, walk in Him. Continue in the faith. Do not be led astray by the, the false doctrines. Do not join those who are falling away, who are being deceived. But remain steadfast in your faith. 
Remain committed to these truths that you have come to know and believe. And more than that, grow in them. Because continuing them does not mean that we can become stagnant in our faith, but it means there should be progress in our faith. Chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says we are to be rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. We're to be built up in Him. The foundation has already been laid. And now we're to build on top of that so that there's progress, there's growth that takes place. We're to be established in the faith. That is, by God's grace, there should be a, an ever-growing confidence that these things are true so that our conviction becomes more and more firm. Walk in Christ. That is, continue in the faith. And what an important word that is for a young man making confession of faith. For we live in a very evil world. False doctrine and apostasy abounds in the broader church world. And the lawlessness of the world itself only increases. And now as a young man in the college classroom, and who not too far in the future will enter into the workplace, you now encounter these things, Dirk, in ways that you did not before. You're exposed to them in ways that you were not before. And the devil wants you to receive to take to yourself, to take into close association, not Jesus Christ, but these false doctrines, these philosophies, these traditions of men. That's the temptation. And it's over against that temptation that the text, the call of the text comes and says, Dirk, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord. So walk in Him. Continue in the faith. Grow in the faith. And thereby draw ever nearer to your Savior. Walk in Him means first of all, to continue in the faith of Jesus Christ. Second, walk in Him means to live a life in harmony with our confession. Before I move on into that, let me note that second question of the public confession of faith. Both aspects of what we are saying it is to walk in Him are captured here. Because question two begins with, have you resolved by the grace of God to adhere to this doctrine, to reject all heresies repugnant thereto. A part of walking in Him according to this question is continuing in the faith, remaining steadfast in the faith. And now there's the second part that we are to lead a new and godly life because the text speaks of walking in Him. And our walk does refer to our conduct, to our behavior as those who have received Christ Jesus the Lord, 
We must recognize He is now the one who commands us, who tells us how to live. We are now citizens of His kingdom. And therefore, we are to not, no longer to walk as children of darkness. We are not to walk in the paths of sin, but we are to walk as those who have been brought into the kingdom of righteousness. We are to live as citizens of that kingdom, walking in the light. And all this is to say that our walk, our behavior, should match our confession. It should be in harmony with that confession. The two go together. So that our walk is to be in harmony with our talk. If we want details regarding what this looks like, we simply need to look at the broader context of the book. This includes being fruitful in good works. That's Colossians 1, verse 10. Paul's prayer is that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's a part of our walk. Part of our walk is setting our hearts on the things above rather than the things here below. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above, not on things on the earth. Walking in Him includes mortifying that old man of sin and all the expressions of it. Chapter 3, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Walking in Him includes putting on the new man. Living according to that new life. Chapter 3, verse 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and so on. This means doing all things to the honor and to the glory of our God. Chapter 3, verse 17, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Walking in Him includes serving Him in whatever station, whatever calling we've been given. For verses 18 and following are addressed to specific segments of the congregation, to wives, to, to husbands, to children, to fathers, to servants. Chapter 4, verse 1, to masters. Wherever God has placed you, whatever station He's given you in life, walk in Him in that sphere of your life. So the calling to walk in Him includes living in harmony with our confession. Again, such an important word for a young man making a confession of faith. Because the devil and the world want to convince us well, that we should live for ourselves. And we should do what's right in our own eyes. Do what's pleasing to the flesh. But having received Christ Jesus the Lord, Dirk, walk in Him. Live a life in harmony with your confession. And if you ask, how can I? How is this possible? Well, the only possibility is that we draw our strength from Jesus Christ. 
And that too is included in the meaning of this passage. For the text says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And well, that certainly includes the ideas that we've already explained. Continue in the faith in Jesus Christ. Live a life that's in harmony with that confession. The main point being communicated in those words is that we are to walk in Him that is in vital union with Jesus Christ. Those two words, in Him, point us to that truth. Our union with Jesus Christ. The fact that there is this vital, living connection between Christ Jesus and our Savior. And that's confirmed by what follows. Chapter 2, verse 7 continues and says, rooted and built up in Him. And that word rooted is notable because it has a different tense compared to all the other verbs surrounding it. It's set apart and it has this idea of, well, you have already been rooted in Him in the past and you're still rooted in Him. And what this is communicating is that we've been united to Jesus Christ. So that the truth that's in view here is the same truth being taught to us in John 15 that Jesus Christ is the vine and we are the branches. We've been engrafted into Jesus Christ. We've been united to Jesus Christ. And as those who've been united to Him, we are to walk in Him. That is, we are to draw our life, our strength from Jesus Christ. For of ourselves, we do not have the strength to heed this Word. Of ourselves, it's impossible to continue in the faith, to live a life that's in harmony with our confession. And thus we look to Jesus Christ. For in Him alone is found the grace sufficient to heed this Word. That's the only possibility. And the key then is that day by day, Moment by moment, we are ever looking to Jesus Christ and drawing our strength consciously from Him. So that when we wake up each morning, we are to have our first thoughts full of our Savior. seeking His blessing and His guidance on the things that are to come in the day. And as we walk down to our morning meal, we do so with our heart's affection fixed on Him. Knowing that He is the One who is altogether lovely. And then as we drive off to school or to the workplace. We do so in the full consciousness that by His Spirit, our Savior is with us everywhere that we go. And then as our hands become engaged in the work of the day, as our mind becomes preoccupied with the things in front of us, 
we still realize that this Savior never takes His eyes off of me. He never stops thinking about me because He ever lives to make intercession for us. So as the hours of a day run on, we continue to look to Him to find our life, our strength, our joy, our contentment, our satisfaction in Christ Jesus. Until at last we retire to our bed. Lay our head on the pillow. With a thought, I cannot wait for Him to return. So that I can live with Him for all eternity. Beloved congregation, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Look to Him moment by moment. Set your heart upon Him. And find in Him the strength that each one of us needs to continue in the faith and to lead a new and godly life. Amen. Let us pray. Father, which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. Grant us now the grace to walk in Him. Apply this Word to our hearts and strengthen our faith in our Savior this morning. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.